You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am joined with my wonderful friends, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. And Dr. Carrie Vedian from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. All right. And we also have the pleasure to have a friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Poonam Sharma, who is a psychologist who works specifically with fertility patients, couples, individuals, um, to join us today. How are you doing, Poonam? Good. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. We're excited to kind of get your perspective on some stuff and things like that. But tell us a little, you know, we like to kind of get into the background of people. Tell us a little bit about you, where where you're from and, and that type of stuff so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Yeah. So, so most people uh, notice my name and they go, oh, what kind of name is that? Uh, my, my parents are originally from India, um, but I grew up in England and I grew up in the United States. And uh, you know, currently living in San Antonio, that's where I practice. And I'm a psychologist in private practice for the last, uh, gosh, 20 years in private practice, 25 years practicing total. So that's yeah. awesome. So when did you live in England? How old were you? I lived there till I was about 13, actually, till from when I was a baby until I was 13. So I went to elementary school there. I moved here at the end of um, middle school. And so I came here with a British accent and everything. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> so a lot of people asking me to, you know, say something, say something. That was a lot of my middle school experience. <laughs> but, and it's funny, sometimes I get uh, patients come in the office and occasionally I have someone who's a real traveler and uh, they'll go, you have some sort of an accent. Is, were, did you ever live in England? Or, you know, they'll be able to pick it up. <laughs> That's neat. What words are they picking up on? Because just listening and even knowing what I'm trying to listen for, yeah, I can't pick it up either. <laughs> well, my kid, my kids notice it because of the. Uh, I'm always like meticulous about grammar and da da da. <laughs> Manners and grammar, right? That's the British way. <laughs> so, what's the biggest cultural difference that you experienced when you came over here from England? Because you know we kind of think we're pretty similar to the English, but I'm sure there's some very unique things that you that you learned when you came over here that you didn't learn when you're in England. We're getting the no way in hell. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, she kind of looked at me like, okay, you're kind of an idiot, but. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I think we're just a lot more relaxed and a lot more friendly, actually, a lot more warm and engaging and um, actually much more open in general, I think, to life and just, uh, you know, it's such a diverse country. And uh, mm-hmm. so, I mean, there is really something to that stereotype of the British, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think that's the biggest thing. It's just a, it's more of an energy thing. Suppose that is. Do you think it's just because they have such a long heritage of being being so very prim and proper, <laughs> um, so very dignified and proper? And of course, Americans are not um, limited by such things. But um, <laughs> why why do you suppose that is? Yeah, since you're our psychologist today, he did, oh, yeah, you have yeah. a unique perspective. <laughs> I think there's a deep sense of pride in being British, right? And the traditions around that and the history around that. I mean, if you live in England or you visit there, right? I mean, it's just a much older place. It's been around for so much longer than the United States. So 
And here we're just, you know, we're a big mishmash of people from all over the world. And so you have to have flexibility when you live in an environment like that. But over there, I mean, there is this, there's this very strong connection to heritage and a pride in it. And I think that's, yeah, what that's about. So I'm curious, since you've also lived in India and you're of Indian origin, Mm -hmm. give us kind of a sense for the Indian population, obviously a much bigger country, much more diversity, I'm sure in that population, but kind of what's the, what's the, the cultural feeling if you're in India, as far as how people act? And well, I actually moved from India when I was a baby, but I will tell you, I definitely grew up a lot around Indian culture because in England, there's a lot of Indians, there's a lot of them. And so, Mm -hmm. so, you know, I think the Indian culture is very connected connected. Relationships are a huge deal. It's kind of a bit like, um, I mean, here, I think if you think about Mexico, just the focus on family and connection, Mm -hmm. and it's very emotionally warm, um, very, very warm in that sense. So, um, but also, you know, there's a lot of rules and all that because it's an Asian culture. (laughs) So so that piece kind of overlaps with the British stuff. Um, But I think that's the biggest thing is much more focus on community and connection and you know, caring more what other people think, but also really caring for other people more as well. Interesting. Interesting. Good stuff. Well, we're going to go to our question of the day. Um, This one's a little bit lengthy, but essentially it says I'm 23 years old and two and a half years ago, I had a hysteroscopy to remove a polyp from my uterus. Um, We didn't continue with any fertility treatment after because the doctor recommended we try on our own since we're pretty young and healthy. Uh, Husband's semen analysis was normal. I went back to the doctor this month since I haven't gotten pregnant and found out that I have more polyps in my uterus. Um, He recommends we remove them again and then do treatment, but also leaves it up to me if we want to start IUI without removing them. So this leaves me with the question on how much would it really affect the IUI treatment? I'm not sure what to do next. Thank you. Good question. It is a good question. Yeah. We see, we, I, I, I see this quite frequently. You know, unfortunately, people who um, have polyps or get polyps tend to get them again. Um, a lot of it has to do with either, you know, the predisposing factor of what what made you get the polyps. I think most re, most commonly, it's going to be either. Um, not having regular periods, um, people who are oligoovulatory or have PCOS, those types of things, or our patients who tend to be on the heavier side because fat tissue does produce a form of estrogen that uterus loves estrogen in any way, shape or form it can get it. And, you know, it ends up leading to polyps, but Carrie and Abby, what do you think? Well, I, I kind of tell patients that if you think of it, an egg is a seed and you think of your endometrium where it implants is the soil, polyps are kind of like rocks in the soil. And, you know, a seed can grow in rocky soil, but it tends to grow better when the rocks are gone. And, you know, I think it depends a little bit on how many she has and how big they are. But as a general rule, I think she probably needs to go ahead and get them out because it's, it's certainly not helping anything and it, it may be hurting her ability to get pregnant, even with IUI. I mean, one of the ways that I kind of approach it with patients is saying, okay, IUI has got a, a much lower success rate than IVF in general. And one of the first questions after you do an IUI cycle it, that didn't work is why didn't it work? And the, the typical phone call that I feel like I have is, you know, I'm really sorry, the pregnancy test is negative. The next question is, why didn't it work? And then we go through, well, you know, your eggs grew. We gave you a trigger shot to release them. We know that we did the IUI so that there was sperm there in the right place at the right time. And it's otherwise, you know, either unexplained or we go back to their history or whatever. But 
when you know that you've got polyps in there, one of the first things we're going to go to is, well, you know, it, it could be the polyps. And that is going to be a lingering concern while they are still there. And especially because when you put the IUI catheter in, it's not like you can direct it around a polyp. And so if you have a polyp and it bleeds, that's a negative pregnancy test. Like embryos don't like blood. It makes them very unhappy and they, they blow the party. And so, so that's one of the reasons why even though it may not necessarily have a direct impact on getting pregnant because, you know, if there's no blood or you're doing a time dinner course cycle or whatever. Um, but it's, it's just knowing that it's there and that it could be a factor. Like we're control freaks. We want to get rid of everything that could possibly get in your way. And so as a result, it's really hard to justify, Oh yeah, let's leave the polyps there because, because we know that there's some way that it could have a negative impact. So, you know, we tend to recommend taking them out. And the other thing to remember is that, you know, even when you're not looking at getting pregnant, polyps are something that generally we recommend getting out as gynecologists. Um, realize that most polyps are going to be benign or safe. However, 2%, so one out of 50 is going to have some degree of abnormal cells. And that could be, you know, um, it could be something that we need to focus on your health. I always say that my number one um, priority is your health and safety. My number two priority is getting you pregnant. And, you know, we want to make sure that those I's are dotted and T's are crossed. And just like Carrie and Abby mentioned, um, a lot of the things that we do in fertility are maximizing all the little interactions. And if we know that there is something major there, um, like a polyp that's sitting there, I mean, if you're able to see a polyp on a regular vaginal ultrasound, that's not a saline ultrasound, it's a pretty substantial polyp. Um, now, you know, if it's a little bitty tiny thing that you can only see on saline ultrasound and it's just a little teeny, teeny, tiny, just all, you know, that, that may be one thing, but if you're seeing it on a regular ultrasound, that, that polyp has some substance to it. And they're so satisfying to take out. Like even one of the most, besides calling for pregnancy tests that are positive, taking polyps and fibroids out of the submucosal area of the uterus. So the area where it's just inside of the cavity, it's not inside the wall. Like it's really one of the most satisfying things you could do because you can see beautiful before and after pictures of it's there and then it's not there. And usually the attachment point is fairly small. So you're not damaging the uterus by doing it. I mean, there's exceptions to every rule. And of course, we're not looking at your pictures, so we don't know. But, um, but they're really very satisfying to take out because it, it can... It's a 15-minute procedure. Yeah, yeah. It's quick. And most of the time they don't come back. Sometimes like our listener, they did, but most of the time when you take them out, you don't have to go back multiple times on the same person. So hopefully she'll be done and get pregnant this time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're going to kind of move on to our subject of the day. And we have asked Dr. Sharma to kind of talk about what are good ways to help maintain your relationships, whether it's with your partner or with your friends or family, um, when you're having fertility struggles, because we all we all know that it's it's not a cakewalk, and there are so many factors that go into there, and and would love to get some more perspective of what are what are some tools and some words of advice for our listeners. Sure, sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, I think it's important when you start to talk about connection with other people to um, talk about. I guess the main barrier against those during fertility treatment, and that is just the tremendous amount of stress that people are under. Um, uh, you know, 
of course, there's the stress from the medical procedures, but there's also the social stress of, um, you know, I'm wanting to get pregnant and, and I can't. And uh, now, you know, my friends are moving on and here I am kind of left behind um, uh, trying to navigate this um, course I'm on, this path that's kind of taking me off the beaten path. I'm, I'm here by myself trying to deal with this. A lot of times um, I find that people are really struggling with a sense of shame or, or sense of failure. And, um, and so when we start to feel um, like we might be judged or we start judging ourselves and we're also stressed, that's really a recipe for disconnection. Uh, we don't really uh, want to necessarily be connected to someone in that. And when we're in that state, uh, we're not always even capable of it. Actually, if the stress gets high enough. Um, we know that one of the results of high levels of stress is actually emotional disconnection. And a lot of people don't know that. I think we just think of stress as this thing that we manage. But once the actual stress response kicks on in high gear, we literally, you know, withdraw. It's a survival response. So, um, so I think that can make it very, very tricky to seek out support. And I think even with your partner, it can be challenging um, because you may not be at your best with each other. Um, if you're both stressed out then and you're both a little disconnected, then you can see how things can escalate uh, very easily, right? Um, it, it, because the other thing that happens when you're stressed is also, I mean, all this is like the perfect storm in some ways. The other thing that happens when you're stressed is that your thinking actually becomes more negative because like it's a survival kind of state. So you're looking for what's wrong, what's not working. And so it's much easier than to get into arguments, to get into, uh, you know, conversations that are unproductive. And, and so, yeah, it, it can be real tough. Can you talk about ways that men kind of deal with those stresses differently than women do? Because I think women, we're outwardly, we show our emotions more and most men don't tend to show their emotions more. So can you talk a little bit more about that and how to cope with that as a patient? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I think, in, I mean, I think when we talk about groups of women in general, women tend to be more expressive um, about what's going on. Now, there are definitely women that don't fit that and vice versa. They're expressive mm -hmm. men. Um, but in general, we can say, I think men tend to kind of go into more problem solving mode and, um, you know, women tend to be more in like, you know, I want to talk about it. Let's process what just happened. Let's, you know, let's share. And that way we, you know, uh, I know how you feel and you know how I feel and that we're now we're on this journey together. And I think what I see a lot of times is you may have a woman, especially if she's the one with the fertility issue, you know, she's seeking him out. He's often actually in a protective stance is what I see 90% of the time. He's kind of outside. He's not like being cold. It can feel that way, but he's just kind of watching over her and kind of, you know, uh, trying to figure out how do we get out of this mess we're in, right? <laughs> or that mode. <laughs> and so he may be actually holding back his emotions because he doesn't want to burden her more. He's like, oh, I don't want, you know, she's already overwhelmed and here I am, you know, what can I do to make this better? So you see guys go into this problem solving mode and then she's like, he doesn't really want to hear what I feel. And then there's a lot of misunderstanding that comes from just a, having a different way of coping with the emotional piece of it. So, um, I mean, that's, like I said, those are stereotypes. You certain, I certainly see a role reversal sometimes as well. How do, how do couples work themselves out of that? How do they communicate better, I guess, if the man's in the protective role? And I think, I think one is you got to get the stress level down, right? Before you can even like communicate because connection. I think if you, if, when it comes to communication, if you can just remember connection actually comes before communication, a lot of times we think hmm. you just go communicate your way out. I think, no, first you got to like 
settle yourself down so that you can actually connect. Once you are actually in a mental state where you're a little calmer, now your mind's more open and more capable of actually thinking rationally and your heart's more open. How do you get to that state? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I know I'm sitting here and I'm thinking of like times that like, you know, my husband and I've been arguing about something. It's like trying to get like, you know, you get to this point where you're like, okay, neither of us, we're obviously not communicating, but how do you get to that like level of connection when you're already, I mean, I don't, I think a lot of people, you, you get to that escalated and then you have to kind of bring yourself back down. How, how do you get to that? <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to remember, I mean, of course we're, we're humans, right? We're not robots. So if we are amped up, right. And you're physically amped up, your heart's racing and you got adrenaline in your bloodstream and you're like angry, you know, you're not going to be able to just turn that off physically. It's impossible. And so I always tell people, you know, it takes 15 or 20 minutes for things to settle down once all that is activated. So it's, it's sometimes the best thing you can do to connect is just literally go take a break. But I, I mean, I know one thing that a lot of women are guilty of, and I used to be guilty of this. I actually did learn. Like if I was having an interaction with my husband, you know, I'd be like, no, we're going to talk about this. And he'd be like trying to get away. And I'd be like chasing him to try to get him to. So we were going to talk about this and work through it. <laughs> and it, a lot of times when, especially with men, when they retreat, it's often because the heart rate is elevated. And because of testosterone, that experience is actually a little more uh, intense for men. And often what they're trying to do is actually calm down. So actually, I guess I'm the man in that situation. I was the <laughs> retreater. He's he's learned over time not to keep, I'm just leave me alone. I need some time. Leave me alone. Exactly. <laughs> and so that break is actually a huge piece of it. Just yeah. get away for a few minutes. You know, and I think when I think of settling um, yourself down, um, you know, I think of M's, I think of M's like, you know, like, uh, I mean, of course, deeper settling, you can, you do things like meditation, listen to some music, just going for a quick walk, like anything connected to nature will actually help you settle down pretty quickly, even petting your dog for a little bit, or, uh, but just go outside, take a breath, you know, stand in the sun for a little bit. Um, any kind of movement will typically help as well. Uh, you can also do, uh, if you know how to do deep breathing or just uh, slowing down the breath, all that will settle the body faster. But there's no way around that I know of. There's no way around the physical amped up piece. You, they're really, so I think of it kind of like a snow globe that shook up. Okay. You got to like, just give it a little time to settle. And if you can use that metaphor, it's actually much more accurate. It's not a switch that you flip. It's just, it settles. And then the body goes back into sort of normal, normal mode. So, ah. I like that. Yeah, I like that too. At first, I thought you were going to go towards M&M's. And I'm like... <laughs> you probably could. <laughs> that would settle me down, M&M's. That's funny because yeah. I call it the M&M's. <laughs> right, so. so how do you extrapolate that to relationships with your friends, your female friends, for example, you know, when they're having babies and they're having baby showers? And like you said, because Susan and I both had fertility issues too, and you, you do feel kind of left behind. You feel like everybody else has this new fun world with kids and you're kind of left behind. So how do you... How do you keep your relationships going with people, even when they're not kind of in the same phase of life as you are? Well, I think that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. I mean, your spouse, you typically got to keep up that relationship, right? And close family members, close friends, you, but um, sometimes people really are in a different place than you are. And sometimes you really do have to make the decision to just say for right now, I'm not going to interact with this person as much because what I find is a, a lot of people just, they're experiencing a lot of uh, traumatic feelings too with this. So 
being around somebody like for a baby shower or someone just had a newborn, it's literally like putting salt in your wounds. And I typically recommend that people don't do that on purpose, that this is a a temporary situation, even the traumatic feelings, even the feelings of jealousy, whatever it is you feel um, toward the other person to just kind of be very, very gentle with yourself and give yourself permission to just take care of yourself. How's the best way to communicate that to if I'm the person who's struggling with infertility and my girlfriends are all pregnant and having baby showers and things like this. And like, I remember this when I was in my kind of late twenties, early thirties, and it seemed like everybody around me was having babies and everything like this. And I I see this with my patients as well. Like, how do you um, gracefully Tell them what the problem that. is. Yeah. So that, so that I mean, I, I think most most of these people, most of our patients are wanting to maintain, you know, the, some of these clo- close relationships over time. This is just a, it's a sticky situation. But how how do you convey that to your friends that you know I appreciate the invitation to your baby shower, and I may or may not have told you about my struggles, and I may or may not want to tell you about my struggles. But how do you gracefully decline and kind of still protect yourself, but protect that relationship as well? Especially when presumably that baby is loved, desired, wanted, and it's a big deal for the other person. And and they're saying like, you don't... They're excited. They want to talk about their baby. They're excited. (laughs) They feel like it's a rejection of them in their important Mm -hmm. life stage events. Those are really good questions. And I think, and I get that a lot, Ashley, because, uh, you know, because most people are actually pretty nice. They don't want to hurt somebody else. Mm. And they certainly yeah. don't want to hurt somebody that they love. And um, at a time when that person is experiencing a lot of joy or something that is a huge moment in their life. So it is, it can be very challenging to figure out how to maneuver through that. I mean, I think for the relationships that mean the most to you, I typically will recommend um, if that person is safe to have a conversation with, I actually typically re- recommend being very open saying, you know, and, 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 and I'll make the comment that, you know, you're not really wanting their baby, right? <laughs> you wanting your own baby. <laughs> so <laughs> That's to a really, good point. yeah, to, to talk to them and say, you know, I'm, I really am so happy for you. I really am thrilled. Uh, but at the same time, unfortunately, because of what I'm going through, it's also very painful for me. And so I'm trying to figure out how to honor what you're going through, but at the same time, kind of take care of myself. And so I just thought I'd just talk with you about that openly. And usually if if a, the other person is really someone who loves you too, um, and they have empathy, they will want to support you. And And I've seen people where family members will um, you know, just give, you know, allow them to like step out of a central role, perhaps in an event or a friend may say, don't worry, you know, you don't have to come just, you know, uh, we'll figure something out later. I mean, I think once you engage somebody that's really close to you, they can help you solve that problem. But I think it all depends on whether you feel like you can safely have that conversation. That's the tricky part, especially with family, because sometimes, um, you know, a person may not be so receptive. They may get very angry that you're not going to be there. So you may have to come up with plan B. Uh, sometimes plan B can be popping in for a little bit and having your spouse be the primary person, you know, or somebody can make an excuse for you if you need to get out of there. You may have to get creative. But I think at the end of the day, you have to really make sure you are taking care of your needs as well. But at the same time, trying to tend to the needs of the other person as much as you can. So just coming out of the holiday season, you know, I, I find that my patients tend to be, I don't, 
more emotional, more upset, kind of around Thanksgiving and Christmas since it's so centered on families. So how do you, what advice do you give patients kind of around the holidays on how to kind of deal with family members that, you know, maybe you don't want to tell your uncle once removed all about your fertility issues. How do you, how do you cope with that when people ask probing questions about your family? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, and once again, that that time of year is, it can be really tough. Like you were saying, you know, Um, to me, it's a little bit like when you go home to visit family that's maybe not so healthy to be around you know <laughs> you have to mm-hmm. decide where your boundaries are up front and sometimes you have to just give yourself permission to spend a little less time or to spend the holidays in a little different way and and not have as much focus on the family um like i said if you have people that really uh you can you trust and who you can be open with then you can all problem solve it together right um but if you don't have that, then, you know, I've had uh, clients where they literally like um, just popped in for a little bit or um, or they ended up actually making plans, completely different plans over the holidays just because they couldn't deal with it. And uh, and and so it is it is tricky. But I think uh, limiting the time that you spend with people uh, and making sure you have an exit if you need it. Because um, sometimes you get in there, it's actually not as bad as you think it's going to be, um, especially if you've told people and they're really being sensitive to that. Empathy is everything. I will tell you, I've had clients where they had a friend that was pregnant and going through a pregnancy and all that. But if that friend was really um, compassionate, it was okay. It's okay. It's just when there's a lack of, uh, on the other end, when you don't feel seen, when you don't feel like that person understands mm-hmm. or that they don't care, that's actually where it becomes difficult. And I think a lot of times it's helpful if you are able to step a little bit outside of yourself and just like you said, explain to them that you are really happy for them and and that you have empathy yourself, that goes a long way for kind of creating that that circle to to kind of bring you both together again. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Empathy on both sides. That's really what relationships are all about at the end of the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when would you advise a person or a couple to potentially seek some professional help in dealing with their relationships? What What are your thoughts? Like if our listeners are sitting there going, okay, we're, we're doing these things, but do I need to go talk to a psychologist? Do I like when, when do you pull that plug? I think that when you feel like things are really starting to get out of hand is always a good time. You feel like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is not headed in a great direction. Um, you know, conflict in of itself doesn't necessarily mean anything bad. It depends on the nature of the conflict that you're having. And, you know, it might be interesting. Actually, one gauge you can use for sure. Um, you know, if you look at the uh, marriage research, there's actually something that's been identified as a list of four things that if these keep showing up over and over in a relationship, um, we know that they can predict divorce with about 85% accuracy, okay? Like you're pretty much headed in that direction if these things are going on. So just being aware that these, uh, they call them actually the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> That's scary. That's what that's called. Okay. And I'll just go through them because I think it's, I think everybody who's married should know this list <laughs> and, and try to um, stay away from this. But if there's a lot of criticism going on, like constant criticism, which Usually women are more guilty of that. And by criticism, I don't mean like, you know, I don't, you know, I don't like the way that shirt looks on you is more deeper than that. You know, you look ugly, 
right? It's that distinction between just kind of surface level kind of commentary versus attacking the person. Um, the second uh, horseman is defensiveness, right? Not being able to take responsibility, always like it's always the other person's fault, right? Um, that's very, very common. Um, stonewalling, which is actually more common for men. And that is literally, you think about stonewalling, it's like you're behind a wall, you've exited, you know, uh, you're just not going to engage at all. You've checked out. And that's different from taking a break, just, just to make that distinction clear. And men are much more guilty of stonewalling. Um, and the last predictor, which is actually the, the best predictor, is actually contempt. That's when you have kind of a snarky attitude, a little hateful, disrespectful. That's actually the number one predictor. So if, if these kinds of behaviors are showing up over and over, when we say the four horsemen take residence, then uh, you better really take a hard look and it would be very helpful to probably go see somebody if you can't figure out how to maneuver out of that yourself. But but separate from that, I think it's also okay to seek help whenever you just need some extra support. It doesn't have to be at that level, right? When you just feel like, oh, nobody understands what I'm going through. I just need some place to be able to just show up as myself and feel safe and feel like I can process through this and figure out how to maneuver it. I think any, any of those times is, is fine too. It's a fascinating list. And you can tell by the fact that Susan, Abby, and I are all quiet. Like you can see it. <laughs> and then starting to apply it to outside relationships. Like, you know, I feel like, all right, you know, the marriage suit, like, I don't think we have any of those. Um, and, and taking a sigh of relief there and then start starting to apply it to all of the outside relationships between family, between uh, friends and acquaintances and all of that. It's um, it's really fascinating to see because like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe this is a friendship that shouldn't keep going because there's some of these hallmarks. And absolutely. Hey, Susan, the question you ask, I, I would be interested to see. And I'm asking you, Susan and Carrie, name a couple of situations where you think patients should be referred for psychological assistance. Because I know there's a couple of things that are kind of popping in my mind when I think I really probably need to send this patient for counseling. Yeah. Um, the patients that I tend to like the, the ones who are very, very angry, um, there, there are just some people who demonstrate their frustration and sadness and anger. And that's, their kind of like overwhelming. And I mean, we see it in the clinic because we're, I, I think we're kind of an easy we're the recipients of the anger. <laughs> we're, we're the recipients of the anger, but if they're that angry with us, I, I always have a concern. What, what, what is happening in your personal and your professional life? Um, and, and so that that's definitely a group of people that I think would, would benefit. Um, obviously if you're ever having any thoughts of hurting yourself or hurting somebody else, um, Unfortunately, I, I'm sure all of us have had um, people who have had suicidal ideation, things like that. And, and those people, you know, reach out to somebody to get help right away. What about you, Carrie? I see the, the people that I think about in addition to the, the anger, um, which are actually probably the hardest for me to refer because they get angry when you refer them. Um, the, the people who look at me and start crying on site. Um, and I, I tend to uh, attract a lot of the, you know, needing a little bit of more emotional handholding in my practice. Um, although my, one of my other partners does that as well. 
um, you know, when I, when I can look at them and go like, they're, they're really struggling because they can't get off uh, a specific topic. And, and it's something that they have no control over, you know, maybe they had a chlamydia infection in the, in the past, and they're just ruminating on it and will not come off a specific topic that really none of us have any control over. Um, you know, I, having, having those people referred, having the people whose emotions dissolve and, and I don't mind, I mean, leakiness from the eyes it, to me means that you're actually thinking about what you're going through. And I prefer that to the people who just stonewall me. Um, and, and I tell everybody, like, I think, I think all humans should be offered and issued a therapist with birth and the universe has <laughs> not seen fit to accommodate that. But, you know, when you're going through this, these hugely stressful times, it's well worth the, um, it's well worth the referral and the time put into it because, you know, when I see the the comments of he doesn't understand or she doesn't understand, or I'm worried about him, I'm worried about her. Um, you know, one of the things that I tell, tell my patients is, look, this is, this is about getting a baby, but this is about the ultimate thing that this treatment's about is building family. And that includes not jeopardizing the one you have and fertility treatment is as stressful according to actual studies that have been done as cancer treatment. And so mm -hmm. it is very important to me that you and your significant other, male, female, or otherwise, walk out of this together. Um, and so I pay attention to that a lot as well. I think the other group of patients, in addition to both of those, I very much agree probably would benefit is sometimes I think people are not self-aware when they're really anxious. And so sometimes we'll have patients who, you know, it's certainly fine to call your nurse and ask questions or schedule an appointment and ask questions. But I think there's some people who manifest their anxiety by doing lots of internet research and they call and call and, you know, want to talk to the nurse a couple of times a day. And, you know, kind of at some point, you know, there's a fine line between you don't want to, you know, make patients feel bad for calling to ask questions. But, you know, sometimes I think it just goes over and above. And that's the point where I think sometimes patients benefit by seeing a psychologist just because they're, they're so anxious. That's the way they're manifesting their anxiety. Um, so I think there's lots of patients that we see that benefit, include and probably including ourselves too at some point, like you said. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I think uh, those are great um, other uh, populations that you guys identified. You know, other people that um, would definitely benefit. You know, I think what's hard is that um, so many of uh, I see mainly women in my practice. I mean, men don't seem to show up a whole lot, even if they're having uh, fertility issues. Um, but most of the women that I've seen are just so used to kind of setting a goal and accomplishing it. And so mm -hmm. they feel so out of control. Absolutely, That's yeah. when you get the anger, you've got control and you've got grief and that's a really tough combination. And so sometimes these attempts to kind of reach out and it's really just to have some sense of control. And that's where sometimes just literally just slowing things down a bit. So a person can catch their breath, get more of a sense of control can be very helpful. I think sometimes even as not not as a psychologist, but as an MD, I think sometimes in the office, if you can make patients self-aware and, and help them realize that really this anger that they're expressing is really just, they're just sad. And it's the yeah. best way that they can, you know, express their, their being upset. And that's the way they do it. And so sometimes even just in the office, once they sort of come to that realization, then I think, I feel like we kind of make a breakthrough in terms of connection and, you know, just moving forward. I, mean, I often tell people if there's a really intense emotion, then you can look at the emotion or you can go, what's driving that? What's underneath that? What's the need that's underneath it? It's usually right under it. 
And if you can identify the need and kind of name that and focus on that. Fantastic. Well, Poonam, thank you so much for joining us. I think we, um, you know, we've got a lot of good pointers and, you know, good things to think about. And, and it's, you know, fertility is is more than just a physical thing. <laughs> it, it is definitely a psychological, emotional um, milieu <laughs> for for everyone involved. And um, I always say that you know half of my job is you know the gynecology part, and the other half is the psychology part. And and I mean, it, I think it's part of what drew a lot of us into it is being able to kind of put those two things together. But thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. And I'm just really glad to see you guys really see that importance of your role because you are, you're the psychologist in the room. <laughs> so <laughs> that's great. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. Would love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit any specific questions you have about uh, infertility. Those really drive what we talk about and how. So we really appreciate those so that we know what you need. Um, all questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously in our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. Uh, the more, more in-depth, embarrassing, entertaining, and informative, the better. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.